is how you know the politicians themselves uh, you know, advertise or their slogans are built on this. This is kind of what they say, that if, if I'm in office, then everything will be okay. Then I will make everything good and I'll fix everything and I'll put everything right. And, um, and so I just want to show you just, you know, a couple of the slogans that people use. These, these were kind of some of the top runners in the election this, this election year, some of them no longer standing like it's Survivor or something, but it kind of is. So here's some of the slogans. Uh, ben Carson, his uh, slogan, heal, inspire, revive. So if I get elected, heal, inspire, revive, right? And if you kind of, I don't, you know, I don't know everyone in this room, kind of what, uh, if you're into politics and stuff, if you were like, yes, if Ben gets in, then heal, inspire, revive, or, or Jeb can fix it, Very, you know, a little more simple, which is just Jeb can fix it. You know, whatever's wrong, doesn't matter. Your dishwasher's broken, Jeb can fix it. America, Jeb can fix it, whatever it is. Um, or, and this isn't his slogan, but I just saw this and thought that was interesting. The Republican savior. I mean, that's saying, man, if this guy gets in, then he can save them. He is the savior. Or more on the Democrat, or no, this is not Democrat yet. This is obviously Donald Trump, the opposite of Democrat. And he says, make America great again, right? So that's his I mean, he's saying, man, if I get in, then America will be fixed. America will be great again. Reagan actually had a very similar slogan, make America great again. So, and then on the Democratic side, Hillary fighting for us. Just saying, if you elect me, I will fight for us. And if that implies there's something to fight for, right? That implies there's a battle that needs to be won. That implies that something is broken that Hillary can fix. That if you elect me, I will fight for us. I will win. And, you know, her, she also kind of has the arrow thing showing, I will move us forward from where we are now. Or Mr. Bernie Sanders, I love how he's, you know, barely <laughs> above the thing. They should get him a thing that lifts it up. But his is a future to believe in. So he's saying that, you know, right now we're here, but there's a future that, that we can believe in. There's something that we can get to. There's something that if I'm elected, there's a future that you'll want to believe in. So every year we kind of get, not every year, every election year, every season, there's this sense, whether for those of you that are political and maybe have one of those you know, bumper stickers on your car or one of those signs in your yard or have posted something about it on Facebook and, and you go, yes, if we get this person in. I remember uh, when President Obama was first running for office and his big thing was hope. Just simple word, you know, and change, both of those things. And people really, man, if we get him in, there's hope. If we get him in, there's change that will happen. In every election cycle, this is, this is, what, people, this is what people build themselves as, is if the right person can come, if the right person can get into office, then things will get fixed. And here's the thing, is here's what they know and here's what we know. Stuff is messed up and stuff is broken, Right? I mean, you look at just, I mean, since we're just talking about politics, and you just look at America, and we go, man, there's a lot of injustice, and there's financial problems, and there's, I mean, there's just problems, right? Whatever you think the problems are, one thing that everybody agrees on is there's problems, right? Whether you think they're the, the issues that Democrats talk about or the issues that Republicans talk about, everybody goes, man, the world's got problems. And something innate inside of all of us is we know things are not the way they're supposed to be. The Bible actually says that we were made, that we were made for something more beautiful than what we experience now. That when God made the world, he said it's good. That when God made the world, 
that we had this connection with God that was uninhibited, that was perfect, that we had just internally within ourselves, we didn't have shame, and we didn't have guilt, and we didn't have all these identity crises that we have, and we didn't have anxiety, and we didn't have, we just, man, we felt at peace and calm within ourselves, and relationally with each other, man, stuff was harmonious, and people got along, and and stuff even with the creation around us, God said, take care of the earth. I mean, so all this stuff that God made us for to experience this wholeness, the Bible uses a word called shalom, this just overarching peace, that that's how God made the world. And we've still got this, whatever you want to call it, but kind of this subconscious memory built within us of we know that's what we're made for. We know that's uh, what the world was designed for, what we were designed for. And so we know something's not right. Something's broken. Something's messed up. We know this. Politicians know this. They, they tap into this feeling that we have that something isn't working the way it should be working. And it's true. It's true because we were made for something different. And in Jesus' time, when Jesus came, when Jesus showed up, and we've been looking at the book in, uh, the, book in the Bible called John, that John, one of Jesus' friends, recounts Jesus coming and the stories about him. And when Jesus showed up, they felt the same way. They felt something isn't right. Something's wrong. And they had different issues th than we have, but, but they felt, man, Something is wrong. Something is broken. And when Jesus showed up onto the scene, when he arrived, some people started to think, and we've seen this throughout, if you've been here for the last um, 18 weeks, uh, as we've been talking about this, some people thought maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one that can make Israel great again. Maybe he's the one that can fix it. You know, maybe he's the one that can lead us to a better future. Maybe he's the one. People started to, I mean, there was thousands of people that would follow him around and they'd see some of the things that he would do and there was an anticipation built up. Maybe this is the one. And they had this hope and they had this expectation, but as the story goes on and as Jesus' years go on, it actually seems to go, actually, things don't seem to be turning out. The authorities are getting more upset with him. They're starting to put more pressure on him. Things are actually seeming like maybe there was this great buildup and this, and this great thing leading somewhere that maybe Jesus could turn things around. Maybe he could change things. Maybe he could restore everything that's broken. And now it seems actually everything's about to be lost. Everything's about to crumble. And in this chapter that we'll look at, chapter 18, that's exactly what his close followers, that's exactly what the other followers around him would have started to feel. It seems like actually everything's about to fail. Everything's about to be lost. But the truth is it wasn't. And so we'll read this chapter and see the clock winding down towards Jesus' death. And what it means is, was everything failed, or was Jesus accomplishing something different? And what does it mean for our life? So chapter 18, here we go. And I'll read this whole thing, and then we will talk about, what does it mean? When Jesus had spoken these words, he went, so Jesus had this long conversation in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, then he prayed in 17 with his disciples around, and now when all that's done, in 18 it says this, 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, Judas was one of Jesus' 12 close followers that he had hand-picked, hand-selected. And Judas had got this idea into his mind, I'm going to sell him out. And so he had gone to the religious authorities to betray Jesus. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, the garden. So this is a place they would hang out, apparently. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So you think of maybe like the scene from Beauty and the Beast where the whole village is marching, right, towards kill the beast, right? So this is kind of what's happening. Jesus is bringing, I mean, Judas is bringing these people to come and arrest Jesus. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? So there's this big band of soldiers and, and religious leaders, and Jesus goes, who are, who are you coming after? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And now this word that he says, I am, actually is the word for the personal name of God that Jesus says. So in some ways he's saying, I'm, I'm the one you're looking for, but he's also saying, I'm God. I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, some people think that when he said that, that name, I am God, and used that name, that there was basically a miracle that because of even saying that, the power basically knocked them down. And I've seen some movies that kind of portray it that way. Jesus says, I am, and everyone goes, and falls down. Maybe that's how it happened. We don't know. Maybe they were just astonished that he would say that because they hated that he would blaspheme in their minds, and so they just kind of went down. We don't, we don't know, but John records, here's what happened. Jesus said, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So Jesus had said this earlier in his prayer, that of these whom you gave me, these disciples, I haven't lost any of them. I'm keeping them safe. And man, I love this because even, think about this. Just, I just want to point this out. This isn't really what the sermon's about, but I'm just going to point it out. Because right here in the middle of one of, I mean, the craziest times for Jesus when one of his closest friends has just betrayed him, when there is an army of soldiers around you with lanterns and torches and all, I mean, and weapons, and they're coming, I mean, he knows what's coming. Jesus knows he's about to die. And what is he thinking about? Let these men go. I mean, in our deepest moments of stress, in our deepest moments of betrayal or anxiety or stress or whatever it is, we're not thinking about other people, Right? We're thinking about us, and we're thinking about other people. Don't you know what I'm going through, right? We're wanting other people to, to cater to us when we're in our deepest moments of hurt and pain and stress. Jesus, in the middle of that, goes, hey, you can have me. Let them go. I mean, I just think that's amazing. It just shows the heart of Jesus towards us. Then Simon Peter, so this is one of Jesus' close friends, having a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So Peter, Jesus' friend, sees the army coming, and he's like, no, not going to happen. Obviously, it doesn't have very good aim because no one just cuts off someone's ear and, you know, probably is trying to kill the dude, right? Because he's going for his head, but I don't know if he had too much wine at Passover or what was going on, but he just whacks off the ear. And also, you got to look at, I mean, Peter's not that brave. Maybe he seems brave, but he cuts off the servant's, like, this is the high priest's servant. This isn't, like, it doesn't say Peter went after the toughest guy. It's like he sees this little guy carrying a lantern, and Peter goes, Whoof, cuts off his ear. Another thing that's interesting, just to point this out, why does it tell us the servant's name was Malchus? I mean, what, who, who cares? Like, why put that in there? And what scholars will say is this is one of the ways that we actually know that these books, that this, that this story is an eyewitness account. Because when the author is writing this down, he wants us to know, hey, and just so you guys know, the guy that ear got cut off, that was Malchus. And what he's indicating is you can go talk to him. He's around. So a lot of times in the Bible, you see these little stories where it'll be like the, the, the fact that the guy's name is Malchus has nothing to do with the story. Why is that little detail in there? It's the author's way of saying, hey, and if you want to go talk to Malchus and ask him, did this happen, you can go talk to him. It's basically a hyperlink linking to his, like, wiki page or his Facebook. He's like, you want to talk to Malchus? Click here. That's, that's what authors, that's what scholars will tell you, because you'll see all these little details in the Bible sometimes like that. It's like, who cares what the guy's name was? Or it'll be like, hey, this guy, was car- this guy helped Jesus carry the cross, and that's, uh, that's Cyrus's dad. You're like, huh? So what? Like, what does that matter? So Malchus, there you go. Uh, got his ear cut off. Uh, doesn't, John doesn't tell us this, but in the other stories about Jesus, it says that Jesus actually healed it. So Jesus picks it up off the ground, pops it back on. Look, Malchus, no worries, dude. So that's, what, that's not a direct quote. But um, next, here's what happens. It's close. First, they let, so they take Jesus, okay? They capture him. They, they capture him. They take him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So they're basically taking him now to the, real, the religious authorities to, try, to put him on trial. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews, this was earlier in the book, that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus. So they're taking Jesus away. Peter's following. Okay, because he's, he's kind of gung-ho. He's all about Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So Peter doesn't go in. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So two disciples follow Jesus, and one of them had some connections. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. So again, we see, man, Peter seems like he's all gung-ho about Jesus, but little servant girl comes up to him and goes, you're not a follower of Jesus, are you? And he goes, no, no, not me. Again, Jesus in the middle of betrayal, in the middle of very hard day. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So they're bringing him up on the stand and they're accusing him. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if I said is, but what if, but what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So round one is this. Now they're taking him again to another court. Not, none of this is legal, by the way, according to Jewish law. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So he's by this charcoal fire it told us about earlier. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. If you were here a couple weeks ago, Jesus prophesied and said, Peter, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. So they go to this priest, then they go to this priest, now they're going to the, the governor. So now they're in um, kind of the Roman, uh, the actual civil authority versus the religious authority. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. The, it's talking about the religious leaders. They didn't go in because they didn't want to be around Gentiles, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate, this is the Roman kind of governor, went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They're saying, trust us. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So Pilate, Pilate the Roman governor is like, man, this, this has nothing to do with me. This is some religious dispute you guys have. You just settle it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Then the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate's questioning him and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered him, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And that word can also mean basically just a terrorist or a rebellious 
kind of person that was basically trying to overthrow the government. So Pilate, they go to one, they go to one religious court. The Jews want him dead. They go to another religious court. The Jews want him dead. They take him to Pilate, now the Roman actual governing authority. And he basically says, look, I don't want to do anything with this. This guy, there's nothing wrong with this guy. And then to try to kind of just clear it all up, he says, okay, look, you guys have a custom that I can release one prisoner. Do you want this guy that some people call the king of the Jews? Or do you want this guy who's a terrorist? And they go, we want the terrorist. And that's how the chapter ends. So you see there's this kind of great expectation. Maybe Jesus is the one. Maybe Jesus can make things good. Maybe Jesus can restore things. Maybe Jesus can fix things. Maybe Jesus can heal what's broken. And it's leading up, leading up, leading up, leading up. And then all of a sudden it seems like it's all crumbling. This would-be king is now about to be killed. But Jesus says something here. Jesus says that he is a king. He is the one that comes to fix things. He is a king and he does have a kingdom. But here's the question, what kind of kingdom is it? Because it doesn't look like the kingdoms that we would expect, right? It doesn't look like the kingdoms that they expected. They, they expected that there would this, be this king that would come and get rid of all the problems and fix it all. And just as in our election season, oftentimes there's this sense in the air. But Jesus says he is a king, but it's not what we would expect, because obviously everything seems to be leading to now this king dying. So what kind of kingdom is it? And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is not from this world, because in, in our world, there are kingdoms. At, at, a, at a, a literal level, I mean, if you think about the whole world, I mean, there's actual kingdoms that exist. At an institutional level, if you just think about, man, there's power structures that exist, whether those are governments or business or, or just, uh, just things that have power in our world. There's kingdoms that exist. And even just at an individual level, if you think about our lives, that if we try to think about our lives, we can think about how much of our life is actually about trying to build our kingdom where my will happens and what I want done happens and the way I want life to be happens. Sometimes guys even say things, I and mean, ladies can say this too, but usually it's guys that are the ones dumb enough to say this, but say, like, I'm the king of my castle and things like that. That at the own individual level, sorry, if guys, you've said that. I'm not trying to make fun of you. But just saying at the individual level, we want our kingdom to be what it is. So, but here's what Jesus says. What kind of kingdom is it? He goes, it's not a kingdom that's from this world. It's not the kingdom that you're used to. It's not the kind of kingdom where people exercise their power and their authority and, they, and, there's, and there's greatness and there's success. It's a different kind of kingdom because Jesus is still claiming he's king and yet he's about to die. Jesus is still claiming he's king, and yet when he's challenged by the Roman governor, he's, he's saying, look, I'm not a threat to you. I'm not trying to take over Rome. So what kind of kingdom is this if it's not the kind of kingdom that we're used to? And what Jesus says is his kingdom is one of truth. That's the contrast that Jesus gives. And Jesus says that for this purpose... I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So Jesus is saying, yes, I am a king. 
My kingdom's different than the kingdoms that we're used to. It's different from kingdoms that are defined by success and greatness and our will being done. He says, it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a different kind of kingdom that's defined by truth. And what Jesus means when he says that isn't just it's defined by all the facts being right. Because throughout the book, when Jesus has been talking about truth, Jesus says, I am the truth. So when Jesus says, my kingdom is defined by truth, he doesn't mean, in my kingdom, all the right answers are there, and you know, everyone knows that two plus two is four, and that you know, all the things, all the facts are right. It's not just some intellectual thing, because Jesus has claimed, I am truth. That he is actually truth incarnate. So when he says, there's a different kind of kingdom, here's what he's saying. He's saying, it's defined by me and who I am being known and seen clearly. What kind of kingdom is it? Jesus says, you know the kind of kingdom that I bring, it's not one that we're used to. It's not one that is achieved and accomplished and seen in this great glory and power and success. The kingdom that I bring is one where I am known and seen clearly and rightly. The kingdom that I bring is one where people actually know me and have life with me. So what is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about? What kind of kingdom is it? It's one where Jesus is seen rightly, where we know him rightly, where we understand who he is. It's life with him. That's what the kingdom that Jesus brings is. He says, here's my kingdom. It's life with me. Here, here's why this is important in part. Sometimes, and for those of you that maybe have been around church for a while in your life, sometimes the way we think of Jesus is as somebody whose job it was. He came to this earth. Why did he come to this earth? What did he come to do? Well, he came to just make sure we don't go to hell and we go to heaven. And so Jesus is the one, man, you better believe in him so you don't go into hell. You better believe in him. And he's kind of like, I've heard it said before, fire insurance, right? So, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Otherwise, you're going to go to hell. Okay, sure, I believe in Jesus. That sounds good. Otherwise, you're going to die. Okay, well, I don't want to do that. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, life with me is what I'm about. I'm not just about rescuing you from danger. I'm not just about keeping you out of hell. I'm about bringing you into life with me, about bringing you into my kingdom. So Jesus comes and he says, I am a king, but the kind of kingdom that I have is different from what you're used to. The kind of kingdom that Jesus has is very different from America's kingdom or Britain's kingdom or all the different kingdoms that Israel was used to that are seen clearly in power and glory and setting up their authority. And Jesus says, yes, I have a kingdom, but it's different from what you're used to. My kingdom is one that is defined by life with me. My kingdom is one that is, it's, it's life where you know me and you understand who I am and you see me rightly. That's my kingdom. It's not a political entity. It's not, a, it's not even a geographical entity. It's a place where I'm seen and known and loved rightly, truly for who I am. So how does this kingdom get established? Because how do, how do other kingdoms get established? 
How did they think that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom? They thought he would ride into Rome on the horse with a sword and cut off people's ears and bring victory, right? That's what they were thinking. This guy's going to come in and defeat Rome. And when we think about how do, how do kingdoms get established today, even when you think about places in the world where there's turmoil and, and things are unstable, kingdoms get established through revolution, or even just in our country, how, to, how does a better kingdom get established? It, it happens through policy, and it happens through the right person getting into office, and then them changing things, and shaking things up, and getting things passed. And That's not what Jesus says, though. His kingdom is one where he's seen and known rightly, and how does his kingdom actually get established? Because it looks like he's about to lose, right? Jesus is about to die, and he's saying, yep, I'm a king. Like, well, what kind of king is going to die? But part of this chapter, part of the whole story in this is showing, yep, that's what it looks like. Looks like he's about to die. But all along the way, the story is showing he's in control. The whole chapter has many things in there where he's about to be arrested in the garden. It doesn't look like he's a victim. He says, I'm gonna, here I am. Just let them go. And it says, this happened so that it would be fulfilled. And then even when Peter, his best friend, one of his best friends, denies him, it says, this happened so that it would be fulfilled. And then even when they, they take him, he says, this is to fulfill. What kind of death? I was going to die. So all along the chapter, you know what it's saying? It looks like things are out of control. It looks like the kingdom is not going to make it. But Jesus is actually in control the whole time. And he's giving himself. He's giving himself over to the authority. He's allowing himself to be betrayed. He's allowing himself to be accused falsely. He's allowing himself to die. Why? Well, this is part of how the kingdom gets established because Jesus has to deal with the real problem. What's the real problem? See, what Israel would have thought the real problem is, is Rome. Rome is the problem. And if we can get rid of Rome, if we can get rid of the, them as these conquering oppressors, then that will be the king that we need. What's the real problem? Even when we think about our problems and our life and we hope maybe someone will get elected that can fix things, what's the real problem? And the way that Jesus establishes the kingdom is because of what problem he's actually dealing with. And Jesus says, here's the real problem, it's sin. The real problem is not just these external realities. It doesn't mean there's no problems externally. But Jesus says, the real problem isn't these external realities. So when I'm coming to establish my kingdom, I'm not coming and saying, okay, getting rid of this system that's messed up, getting rid of this thing that's messed up, getting rid of this leader that needs to step down. Jesus says, okay, I'm about to bring my kingdom. How are you going to do that, Jesus? Well, I'm going to deal with the problem, as all conquering kings do. Okay, what's the problem, Jesus? It's sin. How are you going to do that, then? How's Jesus going to deal with the problem of sin? How's he going to deal, and you know, what is sin? How does he deal with that? Well, what Jesus does is, is he says this. And he says it to Peter when Peter cuts off the dude's ear. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? Now, what does that mean? That's kind of a weird thing to say when you cut off someone's ear. Hey, am I, hey, aren't I supposed to drink a cup? Yes, but aren't I supposed to cut off ears? No. What is he talking about? 
I think that's how the conversation went. All throughout the Bible, the language of the cup is God's wrath. It's God's judgment. It's that we are people that have hearts that want to establish our own kingdom. We are people that have hearts that want to live without any authority over us of God, but want to be our own king, want to be our own gods. Don't think we need another king. We think we are sufficient as king. And the Bible calls that sin and says that God has wrath and judgment against that. And I know those are words that are kind of scary that we don't normally use. Well, the Bible talks about that. But here's the cool thing. Jesus says, look, I'm going to bring my kingdom. And my kingdom is against sin. And my kingdom is against people that want to be their own king. Well, then we should be terrified of that. Because if Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom and he's going to destroy sin, then we would go, well, I've kind of had some of that. But Jesus goes, well, instead of me destroying people that are against my kingdom, you know what I do? I drink the cup of God's wrath. I've heard it said before that if you can imagine all the power of a volcano put into a cup, that's what Jesus is talking about, that he drinks it down and says, instead of that going to you, because who gets destroyed when a kingdom gets set up? All the enemies of the king, the new king, right? If you think about especially like unstable places in our world today and a new regime comes in, they wipe out all their enemies. Well, who's the enemies of God? Well, it's those who have said, I'm my own king. I don't need another king. So if Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, we would think he would wipe out all people, all sinners, you and me. But instead he goes, here's how I'm going to establish my kingdom. I'm going to drink the cup. I'm going to drink the wrath. I'm going to drink the judgment. I'm going to drink the death that should come your way. I'm going to swallow it up. That's what he does on the cross. So how does the kingdom get established? It gets established by Jesus dealing with the real issue. It's not the external things, mainly, but it's our hearts that have said, I'd rather be king than you. So in order to win, Jesus actually has to lose. In order to be victorious, he actually has to be defeated. Because if he wants to bring the kingdom to us, the only way for us not to be eradicated by the kingdom, but instead to actually be able to enjoy life with him as king, is he's got to deal with the problem. When we take communion a little bit, that's what we remember, actually. Part of the wine and the juice is representative of Jesus drank this cup for me. So finally, what does it mean then for us to be part of this kingdom? How do we live in this kingdom? If, if what the kingdom is is not some political entity, entity it's, not, um, it's not what we're used to in seeing kingdoms, but what it is is where Jesus is known and seen truly and rightly. That's what the kingdom is. It's life with him. And the way he brings it is by dealing with the real problem. The way he brings it is by dealing with sin, not by just defeating all the externals. What does it mean for us then to be a part of this kingdom? How do we live in it? And here's what Jesus says. He says that those who listen to everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What does it mean for us to be a part of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing? And Jesus says everyone that's 
of the truth listens to me. How do, we, how do we get to be a part of this kingdom? How do we live in this kingdom? Jesus says, if you listen to my voice, if you listen to what I say and who I am, you're a part of the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means to begin with. It means the way we become a part of life with Jesus is not through, Jesus says, here's who can be a part of my kingdom. Everybody that's good, everybody that does the right thing, you can be a part of my kingdom. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, here's who can be a part of my kingdom. It's everybody who listens to me. Everybody who comes to me. And all the things that Jesus has been saying throughout this book. Come to me, receive me, have life with me. So what does it mean to actually live as a part of Jesus' kingdom? First, it means this. We hear his voice and we go, okay, I'm coming. Instead of saying, okay, once I'm good enough, I can be a part of the kingdom. Or I don't need to be a part of the kingdom because my kingdom's fine and Jesus says, here's, here's who comes into my kingdom. It's those that are weak, those that are humble, and those that know they need a better king. Those that listen to my voice. And then once we're a part of that kingdom, it's to continue in that same way. To continue to see him, to continue to hear his voice. What does it mean for us to be a part of the kingdom that Jesus brings? It means we listen to his voice. That's what it means. That's what it means in some ways to be a part of any kingdom, right? That you're listening to the voice of the one making the laws. You're listening to the voice of the one saying, here's what life is going to be done like here. To be a part of Jesus' kingdom means that we go, he's the king. And I listen to his voice and it fills up my life. And my life is shaped not just by I've got some personal relationship with him, but my entire life is shaped by Jesus is king and I'm a part of his kingdom. It means we listen to who he is and what he says. If, if you really think about it, especially those of you, and I know, you know people are different places, but for those of you that say, I'm a Christian, how much of your life do you say, here's how I'm living my life, my goals and my, my plans and my, my, just my everything, how much of it is I'm listening to the king and he's defining it versus how much is, okay, I'm trying to build my kingdom and do my thing with my goals and my, my plans and my time and my money and my freedom and my desires and, my, and I'm building my kingdom and, oh yeah, I want some insight, Jesus. Jesus says, no, here's what, here's what it means to be a part of my kingdom. It means that you go, you're the king, speak. I want to be a part of that. You know what else it means? to live as a part of this kingdom, it means that Jesus is after so much more than just our individual personal relationship with him. Think about even the word kingdom. I mean, a lot of times we talk about God as something like, you know, me and God and my personal relationship with God. And that's true. We should have a personal relationship with God. It should be something that's real to us that's not just a uh, religious activity. But Jesus says it's so much more than just some individually related thing. It's something that is, I'm not calling you to just know me and us to be friends. I'm calling you into a kingdom. That's a collective thing. He says, I'm calling you to be a part of a new society, right? I mean, isn't that what a kingdom is? It's a way where life is done, where, where there's certain things that govern it. And Jesus says, I'm inviting you into a kingdom to actually be a part of a new community, 
where things are defined differently, where life is different. Do you know that's what the church is supposed to be? It's supposed to be a place that is actually, what if that we say, you know, even if you just envision us in this room, that if we say, what would our life together look like if Jesus was king? What would our life together look like if we said, hey, we're not actually just some people sitting in pews, but we're a, we're, we're a new kingdom. We're, we're, we're a new country that actually exists. I'm not saying we're supposed to like, you know, barricade ourselves or something like that. But if we said we're a new country that exists within this country. And so we think differently about life with God. That, that's what Jesus says. That he's a king that brings a kingdom. And it's not just some individual relationship, but what would life look like if Jesus was king? How would that change how we treat people? How would it change? I mean, Jesus is a different kind of king. Where weakness is valued instead of strength. Where connection is valued more than independence. Where grace is valued more than self-sufficiency. What would it look like if we said, Jesus is the king of this community? And what would that look like when we go into our lives and we go, okay, I'm actually not just an American citizen, I'm a citizen of King Jesus. And so when I do my work and when I relate to people and when I, when I live life, it's different because I'm actually listening to the voice of a different king. What would that look like if the person that set up his kingdom by dying was king of our lives? not just individually, but collectively. What does it mean to be a part of this kingdom? It means we listen to his voice. It means that we're not building our own kingdom. It means it's not just an individual thing, but it's a community thing where our life together is supposed to show here's what life looks like with Jesus as king. This is what Jesus came to do. He said, this is the purpose that I've come into this world. It was to set up a kingdom. It wasn't just to save individuals. It wasn't just to take away our sins, even though it was, but it was to set up a kingdom, a place where life with him is known and experienced, a different kind of community, a different kind of city that one day we will fully experience, but that has been inaugurated now and that we live in light of now. And when we take communion, what we remember is that Jesus drank the cup in order to bring us into his kingdom. So the communion represents Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for us to deal with the real problem, sin, to bring us into his kingdom. That he drank the cup so we don't have to. That he died so that we can actually find life that instead of destroying us, he actually wants good for us. Not the good people, but the ones that say, man, I need a king. So, this is what we remember. This is why we sing, because we believe Jesus is a good king that invites us to know him and enjoy life with him. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you that you want more for us you want us to actually be a part of uh, your kingdom. Um, God, I know it's hot in here and it's hard to, hard to hear all these truths when we're sweating. But God, I ask that you would just help us, even as we sing and take communion, to remember 
how much you love us that you don't just save us, but you actually bring us into life with you, into a new kingdom. You don't just take away sin, although you do that, but you bring us into a new way of life. And so I pray, help us to hear your voice, help us to listen to you, and as we close our time together to remember just how good of a king you are. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.